0: Number one, Managing for the Master, First Quarter, 2023, John Pauline.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start Lesson 1, part of God's family under the quarter, Managing for the Master, till he comes. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator. Obi is going to offer the opening prayer.
2: Our Father, we gather together this morning seeking your guidance, Lord, as we discuss this lesson of being a part of God's family and the responsibilities and rewards of this. Thank you so much for your presence as John leads our study. May all present and those who listen hear your words through the Spirit and be blessed. Amen.
3: Well, we're starting a new series. This is a series entitled Managing for the Master Till He Comes. And this creative title is another way of saying what Adventists often call stewardship, which actually is a fundamental belief. As far as I know, we're the only denomination that has a fundamental belief on stewardship. And I thought right at the start, because this would be the motivation, I think, for church leadership to choose this topic to be given during this quarter. And fundamental belief number 21 on stewardship reads as follows We are God's stewards entrusted by Him with time and opportunities, abilities, and possessions, and the blessings of the earth and its resources. We are responsible to God for their proper use. We acknowledge God's ownership by faithful service to Him and our fellow human beings, and by returning tithes and offerings for the proclamation of His gospel and the support and growth of His church. Stewardship is a privilege given to us by God for nurture and love and the victory over selfishness and covetousness. Stewards rejoice in the blessings that come to others as a result of their faithfulness. So the concept of stewardship is a much broader one, but is often associated mainly with the idea of tithes and offerings. And I can't resist sharing a little bit of an off-color story, which was when my first senior pastorate was in a place called Port Jervis, New York, a small town right at the intersection of Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. and. We had a minister's council in that town, and we were having one of our monthly meetings in one of the local churches, and it just happened that the Catholic priest and the Methodist pastor and I all used the men's room at the same time, and we were standing there at a certain device sort of side-by-side. I was in the middle, and the Catholic priest spoke over me to the Methodist. He says, hey, he says, you need to get to know this guy. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. And they practiced tithing. And he says, your church's finances would be a lot better if you embraced that idea. (laughs) So that was one of my very first meetings like that. And I was really startled about that, but how widely that was known, that the idea of looking at money, looking at possessions, looking at resources as a stewardship, as something to be used for God and for God's glory and so on. So that's what this quarter is going to be all about. According to the author of the lesson, there are more than 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal with money, possessions, and our attitude toward them. And as the fundamental belief shows, it's much more than just tithe and offerings. Stewardship encompasses many, many other things, which we'll get into as we get through this series of lessons this quarter. So, our first lesson is entitled Part of God's Family. So the whole idea here is to see stewardship in the context of God's family, that God is like a heavenly parent and provides for us everything that we need and invites us to respond in kind and be productive members of the family. Along the way in this session, we will also talk about money and what money means. And for me, that probably will be the highlight of our current session. So let's turn to the handout and go to number one in the handout where it says this lesson considers the privileges and responsibilities associated with being part of the family of God. What kind of imagery is used in Ephesians 3 in that passage? While there are religious differences among us, we're all members of God's family. It is the rare parent that rejoices when their children move away, no matter how badly they have behaved. Similarly, God is not willing to lose any member of the family, but prefers that all will come to repentance. So let's get into the text that triggered some of this. Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15.
4: For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name.
3: So what he's saying here is that there's a universal family, And that every earthly family is a model of some of this bigger universal family as well. So God is portrayed as Father, and we all get our identity from Him. This used to be really, really central, I think, in a lot of people's thinking. The idea of the church as a family. I remember growing up, I grew up in New York City, and we attended a German-speaking church. The children's Sabbath school was in English, and so we didn't feel totally left out as kids, but the sermon and the songs and so on, and the main worship would be in the German language. But one of the things that struck me is nobody used first names there. Everyone was Bruder Kirk, you know, or Bruder Bell, or Bruder Ziprik, and that last one sounds appropriate to a German context. (laughs) So it was brother this and sister that. And when I went to Germany for a year, when I was at the age of 19 and attended the Adventist College in West Germany, the same practice there. The students called each other brother so-and-so. My roommate was Brother Bruda Brumba, was my roommate. And I was Bruda Pauline. And so everything was brother and sister. And that's kind of a nice tradition that something that we've lost, maybe that was really good. But one little piece to add to this is that when Jesus became human. He was not only part of the parent role in God's family, but now became one of us. He became one of our siblings. And that Jesus brought the Godhead into the human side of the family. And I think that's a pretty exciting concept. So stewardship is kind of a subset of a much larger picture of the family of God. God's created beings are his family. Let's go to number two. there it says, read Exodus 3 and 5 and Galatians 3. And the question is, what picture of God do you draw from these texts? So we'll read them one by one. And if you're inspired to comment on any of these, you can. But as we're thinking through these four, be thinking of the question, what is the picture of God that comes through in these statements? So Exodus 3 and verse 10.
4: So come... I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt.
3: He calls Israel my people and the children of Israel. Strong family concepts there. Exodus 5.1.
4: Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness.
3: Once again, Israel is my people. Obviously, God's family is bigger than Israel, but in a special way, he adopted Israel as his people and would speak in those terms even to foreigners like Pharaoh. Galatians 3.26.
4: For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith.
3: All right. Children of God through faith in Christ. So the family concept is widespread in scripture. Climax is perhaps with verse 29 of Galatians 3.
4: And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise.
3: All right. So God treats us as his own offspring. So what do you make of all this? This family concept? What does that tell us about God? What kind of picture of God can you imagine from this relationship? All right, Terry?
4: Well, very warm and open with his arms spread out to welcome everybody to come.
3: Mm. Okay, just like a parent welcoming the kids home, even when they've misbehaved, because they're family. You don't have four kids one day and three the next because one was disobedient. The Parents still have four children. All right, Sherry or Gary?
0: I think it depends on what the parent is like. There are a lot of different kinds of parents, and so you would get a different feel depending on if you trust them, how reliable they are.
3: Okay, so yeah, I can tell you that there's one class I teach where I ask the question, how do you feel when you hear God called Father? How does that make you feel? And it's fascinating as students unpack, you know, sometimes their parenting and their experiences in the home. It isn't always a positive image. So God is, shall we say, the father that we were all supposed to have, that God is perhaps a model for what a true father is like. One of the core concepts of geopolitics, interestingly enough, is the love of one's own. In other words, it's natural for human beings to be the most attached to the people who are closest to them. And the reason for this is human beings are born helpless. There are many animals that are sort of ready to go. You know, the the colt is born and, and it looks a bit clumsy for about an hour or two. And then it's running around like it always did that before. Human beings are pretty helpless. You can't imagine most children fending for themselves before the age of at least 10. So for at least 10 years and probably many more, human beings are essentially helpless. So it's natural. It's fortunate that there's somebody taking care of you when you're born. Most often it's the person you were born to, but sometimes it'll be someone else who takes on that role. And it's very fortunate that human beings are willing to play that role for others. Otherwise very few would survive. So the love of one's own is kind of the core there. And politics is how do you manage it when different families have conflicting expectations from their government, when different tribes have conflicting expectations, different states, different parties. You see, love of one's own, it kind of circles out from the family to the local community to the wider community, etc., and, and can be in the nation as well, the love of one's own nation. We see that going on right now in Europe, where the love of one's nation is at the heart of a horrible war. So this is kind of at the root of the universe that we put the most important attention on those who are closest to us. Neil?
1: We look at Exodus and we see a father wanting to do whatever's possible to give his children what they need, the freedom that they need to go and worship.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I approach this as someone who is a father and is a grandfather. And for me, the starkest memory of all that was when we spent three months as a family in Jerusalem, in a very, very foreign place. It was only the second time I think our children had ever traveled anywhere as a family, aside from a few road trips and so on. And I remember we had 10 suitcases and five carry-ons, and the kids were small. And so when we're in line at the airport, every couple of feet, you got to move every one of those 15 suitcases, and on and on. And then getting on the plane, I had one stewardess just light into me because I was carrying five Carry-ons, and I'd about had it at that point (laughs) with the whole trip, anyway. And she just sort of, "You can't do that," and I said, "Don't bother me. I'm a father." And I just brushed by her and went on. (laughs) You know, so it's managing a family is complicated and it's challenging. And God is saying, "I'm a father." God is taking on that complication. And the bigger the family, the more complicated it gets. And so you see in all those stories of the Old Testament, the messiness of what it's like to be a father in a really big extended family. Michael?
5: Your family of origin tends to influence your perception of these concepts. If you came from a family in which you had a very loving father and mother, then the idea of that concept spills over into your ideas of God the Father and the Mother Church and things like that. But if you have a very... Difficult, strained relationship with your parent, particularly one or more of them who were abusive, then that doesn't play very well. You know, father, that's a notion of somebody who was very brutal or a mother who was unkind and uncaring. So that I think affects our perceptions of
3: how we react to that term. So God then is the father that we wish we had strong, protective, but at the same time, gracious, kind, loyal reliable. Like the other images, and we've talked about it in other sessions, the metaphors of Scripture, it's easy to take them in a universal sense, but the fatherhood of God is a metaphor about God's character. It's trying to teach us something about God, but not everything you attach to the term father. Applies to God, and not everything you would attach to it is helpful in understanding Scripture. So, once again, Scripture uses many metaphors, many figures of speech, but to take them in a universal sense and drag out every possible ramification of that analogy would probably not be helpful. So, let's go on to number three. And there's a series of texts, and I'd like you to hear them all together. Psalm 50, 24, 1 Chronicles, Haggai. Just hear them all together, and then we'll reflect on that just a little bit.
4: For every wild animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all that is in it is mine.
3: All right. Psalm 24, 1.
4: The earth is the Lord's, and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it.
3: All right, First Chronicles twenty nine fourteen.
4: But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able to make this free will offering? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you.
3: All right, and then Haggai two eight.
4: The silver is mine, and the gold is mine," says the Lord of hosts.
3: All right, so here you see, God owns everything the earth is the lord's the birds are the lords the animals are the lords and keep in mind those animals that was wealth in those days people who accumulated wealth it was often accumulation of many many uh, animals all things come from God when we give something back to God it's we're just giving what he's already given to us earlier and then he says the silver is mine and the gold is mine so This series of texts is a biblical theme that suggests God's ownership of everything, including money. So let's get down to the elephant in the room, and that is money, all right? What is money? Because I think we need to answer that before we fully understand where this lesson is going. All right, Neil? Frozen labor. It's frozen labor. I'd like you to thaw that a little bit for us.
1: Well, you get paid for what you do. So it's your labor that's been frozen into something that you can deal with and handle. Instead of swapping, doing this for that on a trade, you get the money, and then the money is, in essence, your labor that's been frozen, and you hand it off to somebody else for what you need. All right. Very interesting and
3: helpful. Thank you. Michael?
5: Well, a classic definition of money is it's a medium of exchange. It's the way in which I can... Change my labor and efforts for something that you have that I regard as of value, which is a result of your labor and so forth. It's a convenient way of rather than having bartering going on back and forth.
3: Okay, let me frame this in a way maybe you haven't heard before that for me was life changing many years ago, and I think probably every major purchase that we've ever made ask ourselves these kinds of questions. What is money? I think the earlier answers have been right on target, but let me frame it a little bit differently. Money is time plus talent. You put in a certain amount of time, you have a certain amount of talent, and the combination of that time and talent produces something that is of value to other people. So uh, money in a sense is, you know, you, you called it frozen, right, Neil, and that's I think a helpful analogy. Money is in a real sense storing up some of your time and talent for future use. You share it with someone else and they respond with some pay. But let me ask the question a little bit differently. What is life? Is not life time plus talent? And some people are more talented than others. So their pay may be larger than others. Same amount of time can produce more money if you're more talented, be more trained, more experienced, et cetera. So if money is time plus talent and life is time plus talent, then what's the third part of the equation? Money is life. Money is a symbolic thing we put on a piece of our life. We gave a piece of our life to earn that money. And when we use it to buy something, we're buying someone else's life. You now, for example, if you're buying a car, a lot of people put time and talent into creating that vehicle for you to buy. And you're exchanging the representation of your previous time and talent and life in exchange for that vehicle. If you're buying a wash machine, same principle as at work. People are giving their time and talent to create the machine. They're receiving your money as an equivalent for the life that they expended. So it's life for life in a real sense. And we'll get practical with that in a minute. But Larry, go ahead.
1: When I first entered the workplace was about the time that mastercard was just starting to roll out with the idea that common poor people who live paycheck to paycheck could actually get in even more trouble than they were in by getting a credit card and what i found later as i was trying to work my way out of the problem i'd gotten myself in that there were things that i would not give cash for in other words Take a hundred dollar bill. I mean, that's okay. I can readily see that that's a hundred dollars, but to charge it on my credit card, it took me a long time to understand that that same hundred dollars actually was more expensive on the credit card, but there were things that I wouldn't pay cash for. So with that understanding, how has that concept changed our understanding? of the stewardship role. But anyway, I think it's changed that where historically, when we think back, how does the stewardship of time, talent, and assets, the 24 hours that we have, how is that impactful in today's lesson because of how we've dealt with finances as a culture? Well, obviously, if you borrow, what are you doing? You're borrowing
3: your future. That's what you're doing. You're offering to pay it back with earnings you have not yet earned. When you're living off savings, you are living off of the past. And which of the two is the wiser way to go? It would seem to be living off the past rather than living off the future. Because living off the future, you're obligating yourself to give time and talent for something you will not get in return. You're simply returning that representation of your life to somebody else. So living within one's means is also living within one's actual life. Now, let me be practical here, and then I'll turn to Michael. You're buying a pair of shoes, okay? Uh, One pair of shoes is $50. How long would it take you to earn those $50? Depending on your salary, maybe one or two hours, right? But you look over the other side of the shelf, and you see some $300 shoes that look really, really cool and really, really comfortable. You say, I think I might go for those $300 shoes. Well, now you're exchanging anywhere from three to maybe 15 hours of your life for those shoes. And by thinking in those terms, you begin to value your purchases. I mean, a lot of us just buy stuff without even thinking. But when you sit down and say, you know, those shoes are going to cost me 15 hours of my life. Is my life being improved that much by that choice of shoes? Or is the cheaper shoe, you know, 90% is good and it takes a lot less out of me. This is probably even more useful in buying a car to realize in order to get this car, I'm giving up 1, 2, 5, 7, 12 months of my life, depending on your salary and depending on the price of the car. So for me, it's been extremely helpful to simply weigh how much life I'm giving up in order to make this major purchase. And is it worth it to me? Am I willing to work for seven months in order to have this car as opposed to one that would cost me only two or three? Is my life that much better? And it can provide a perspective. And I think coming back to what was just said, one of the dangers of the PayPal economy or the Venmo economy these days is that is a tendency to lose touch with that reality. Money is sort of a non-solid thing, you know, like the $100 bill. And if it's not solid, it's easy to lose touch with the fact that that number is a value in your life. And the faster you decrease that number, the less you're respecting the life that it took to gain it. So anyway, that to me was a life-changing concept that impacted all of our major decisions through the years. And I think that might be helpful to restore a bit in today's world. Michael?
5: I think that's a useful statement. I am guilty of something I think a lot of people are. Impulse buying is to go to Costco with the idea, I want to get two things, and you walk out of the store with a basket full of eight other things that you hadn't planned on buying. Yeah. We all do that, some to a greater extent than others. And the other thing I was going to mention is the way we spend our money is dependent upon our level of income. And that example is what car we drive, what house we live in, all that's affected by our standard of living, except in one aspect of society and in our economy, and that is health care. Nobody goes into the hospital having suffered a heart attack and says, wait a minute, I want to cut down on the expenses. I don't want a cardiologist. Just a general practitioner is good enough for me. And I don't need one of those angioplasties where you put a stent in my Heart or heart vessels and so forth. Nobody thinks that way. They want the very best care they can get, which is one of the reasons why healthcare in the United States is so very, very expensive.
3: Yeah. One of the earliest iterations of what has become Costco was a little company in Massachusetts called Spags. I don't know how you survive with a name like that. And they didn't, but that, this was the ultimate discount store, all main brand stuff, but everything was cheaper. And I remember a lady coming back from Spags one day and showing me, she says, look at this. This is amazing. It cost only a $1.29. And I looked at it and I says, well, what are you going to do with it? I don't know, but it was such a good deal. I couldn't resist. <laughs> well, at that point, you just spent the piece of your life or something that you're going to have to throw away later on and waste some time doing so. Yeah, the danger of the discount department store is that you lose touch with a little bit of reality. And that's, I think, the way they like it.
5: I remember coming out ahead, of the Costco school many years ago, and here was a guy that was behind me, and he had a case of sauerkraut. And I said, you sure must like sauerkraut. He says, not particularly, but in such a good way, I couldn't pass it up.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Julie?
0: Well, I'm thinking about these texts about my father owning everything and has everything. And that's often used in the context that, yeah, you don't have to worry about what you need. God will take care of it. It's a beautiful thing because it takes me out of the current economic system and gives me freedom in situations to not only give of my money, but to give of my time. So volunteering and donating. But on the other hand, that concept that my father owns everything does not entitle me. And therefore, I'm also seeing myself as somebody who frugally needs to take care of his resources and distribute them carefully, particularly for my own needs. So maybe this seems kind of opposite, but it's a combination of being liberal in some areas and being extremely careful in others as far as resources, not just of money, but of time.
3: So when you dig deep into the principles of scripture on any topic, you often come to something just like that, which is a tension between two principles. The one principle is a principle of being frugal with God's resources, and the other is at other times being very liberal with it. I remember James White once in a sermon talked about money, and he said, I operate by three principles. Number one, earn all you can. Number two, save all you can. And number three, give all you can. Those were the three principles that he tended to operate by. And I think another of the things that really was crucial in my life is the recognition that financial security comes from living on less than you earn, living below your means. If you spend 110% of everything that you earn, then you're going to be in trouble it's inevitable. It cannot be any other way. But if one consistently puts aside 10, 15, 20% as savings month by month by month and gets used to living on a disposable income that's less than 100%, accumulation and saving becomes almost inevitable as well. All right, let's go to number four. And number four, says, read Genesis 1, 26 to 28, when God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth, what did that include? That's an interesting piece of this whole stewardship idea is that God didn't simply say to human beings, okay, I'm going to give you life, and then you sit around and do whatever I tell you. But God gave them dominion, and dominion means something different than simply being a passive player. Let's read Genesis 1, to 28, which is the core text for stewardship.
4: Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth.
3: So it's interesting. We've talked about this in other contexts. But there are three basic relationships going on here. Adam has a relationship to God in which God is, so to speak, superior to him. God is his mentor. God is his master, however you want to put it. And then he has a relationship with Eve that's on a more equal basis. Male and female, he created them. But then he gives Adam and Eve dominion over the earth, a similar relationship to the earth that God has to them. So God mentors them, and they are to mentor the earth. So the question comes into mind, you have this interesting word translated dominion. What is it that God gave them when he gave them dominion? How would you express that? Seems like a pretty important term for this subject. But if we don't get dominion right, we may miss the rest of the quarter. Here we go. All right, Larry.
1: A one-word answer would be responsibility. And then that raises the next question is, well, then what does responsibility mean? So dominion in the biblical sense, as I've come to understand it, is you're personally responsible for the actions that you do. Man is responsible for the care, which includes the growth and to train things to grow, to bring things up, to teach. It also includes the responsibility to learn yourself. So to be responsible isn't just a one point on the spectrum. It's a continuum because to be responsible, I'm constantly showing up and learning. I'm studying and learning. I am sharing what I learn. I am correcting myself and others based upon what I learn. So I think it's a big concept, but the simple word I think is responsibility. Okay. That's a helpful suggestion. Uh, Iris.
6: I would like to relate to the word of creativity. When my husband studied architecture in Berlin, they were a cohort of 400 students or something like that, and they were broken down in groups and they received often one assignment. And then the fascinating part was that they split into these groups and all these groups created different solutions, creative solutions whatever they had to come up with for the same assignment and then they had to present these of course and argue why they solved certain problems in whatever way they chose to solve it and they had to defend it. I think in the creative arts, we see what dominion means. It's our ability to shape the natural environment that God has given us. We see that when you walk through your neighborhood and you see how someone created a beautiful garden and it stands out and it is different to the cookie cutter garden that you see everywhere. That ability of us to create and to work with what is there. that caretaking is part of that, but also that very personal expression to create beauty, to create something that is unique. I think that is also part of that dominion part.
3: What you're saying sounds like a little bit different or a little bit more than just responsibility. Yes. Responsibility could give the idea that, well, God is telling you what to do. Mm -hmm. but the creativity piece I think is also an important part
6: yeah so we're not just a doll that is put into a cupboard and then it sits there but rather we are creative beings that interact with the environment and shape the environment
3: yeah because the word dominion does have a sense of leadership as well as simply followership Darla
6: It makes me think of the parable
2: of the talents that the landowner gave the talents to the three people. And it kind of goes back to the money piece. One was given more, one was given medium, one was given less. But the two that were given the most were very creative in Investing that and bringing back a yield. I think that's what God wants us to do in responsibility to the earth. To be a good steward means that you can create this environment where the yield can be even more. And God wanted us to participate in that whole aspect. It is troubling that our creativity, now how many carbons do we, you know, and all of the whole global warming piece, and some Christians kind of get a bad rap for not being good stewards of the earth. And I find that tension kind of confusing of how to be the kind of Christian, God-believing steward that will be helpful to the earth and not harmful.
3: Thank you. Yes. Michael. Well, dominion
5: also means power. For example, when Orville and Wilbur Wright set about to create what we call an airplane, they called it a flying machine. In fact, the first aircraft, they named it the flyer. They were seeing whether or not they could create a heavier-than-air machine that was capable of powered flight, and they were able to prove that it was possible, and it gave birth to a whole field of aviation, and that is sometimes referred to as They had dominion over the air. They had achieved something that had not been achieved, although thought of for centuries by other men. They had finally accomplished it. And then, after that happened, there was all kinds of duplications of of their thoughts and ideas. I also think of the state of Virginia, which is also known as the Old Dominion. It's a form of government.
3: All right. Thank you, Henry.
7: Yes. Thank you. I would like to submit the idea that. We have a problem trying to define dominion in the way that God given it to Adam and Eve. First of all, that was in a time when Adam and Eve were not rebels, were just created in the image of God, they were behaving under the guidance of God, and they were given another piece of what God is, because God was sharing with them the dominion that He had over nature. So for us. After Garden of Eden, we have a completely different concept of dominion. So we cannot have an idea of what dominion meant to God when he gave it to Adam, because we have not experienced that type of environment. So for us, dominion is power. Dominion is authority. Dominion means absolute ownership and all of these things, because this is the only thing that we know. None of us actually experienced what God was intended for Adam and Eve. And what I think dominion in the idea that God was intended for Adam and Eve before seeing hit Garden of Eden was you will do what I have shown you that I did during creation time. I am the supporter. I am making everybody helping each other. Look in the order that I did creation. This day is helping the next part of creation. And this part of creation is helping the next part of creation. And at the end, you are at the end are going to be helping all over in the cycle to keep it rolling, it nice, to keep it working. You are a servant, just as I am a servant for you because I am working for you, Adam. So you can have it all. To me, that's the dominion that God intended. But since human beings now, we only know dominion in the other way. We think that Adam was given dominion. To say what he wanted to do with the fish, what he wanted to do with everybody else, because now he was the one in power. That's the distortion that sin created. So to me, the meaning when it was given to Adam and Eve was, you are a servant, just as I am a servant, God explained to Adam. Someone in the
3: chat asked, what does it mean that Adam had dominion over the fish? And I think we get a clue of that. In Jesus, in John 21, when the disciples are out fishing, and they fish all night and don't catch anything, and then Jesus says, put your net on the other side of the boat, which is the opposite of good fishing technique. If you're fishing in the morning, you want to put your net in the shady side of the boat so you can still surprise a few fish swimming by. He had them put the net out in the open sun and filled it with 153 fish. So, Jesus was Adam as Adam was intended to be. Adam apparently had a lot of power as well as responsibility, because in Jesus, we see what the image of God was fully intended to be. So, I think that's pretty
7: amazing stuff. Yeah, Henry? But I would like to argue that the way that Jesus showed that was under the circumstances of sin already, Mm. when fish was intended for food, which was not the original plan. So Jesus needed to adapt to the circumstances after sin. Before sin, Adam was the caregiver of fish. That was the dominion. He was supposed to do everything for fish to thrive and expand. But again, that's what I think. We don't have the idea of what God meant because we all have only lived under the distortion of sin when dominion means you will do what I want because I am the one on power. Let's take a look at
3: Genesis 2, Henry. I think those thoughts were very, very timely and on target. There's three verses in Genesis 2 that elaborate a bit on the dominion idea. Genesis 2.15.
4: The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it.
3: All right, to till it and to keep it. The King James said to dress it and to keep it. And those Hebrew words imply two things. One is to dress it means to improve it. It means to embellish it, to make it beautiful, to put that creative spin on the creation for the good of the creation. And the other one, to maintain it, to operate. In other words, things tend to deteriorate over time, but they had the opportunity to maintain what is there and also even improve it over time. Verse 19
4: So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name.
3: So human beings were called to care for the animals, as Henry brought out. Verse 22.
4: And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man.
3: Right to to care for each other. God created the woman but brought her to him, and the two were to care for each other as part of the larger relationship. So the dominion is God ceding a significant amount of power along with responsibility. I mean, human beings are choosing when to have children to a large degree, and they are making decisions about the environment, about how to dress it and to keep it etc so what god did here was quite remarkable and i found in the business world a model that may be helpful here but first let's hear bob
1: how far out does dominion go in space as knowledge has increased we have been starting to explore mars and the moon and there's obviously talk of going further out i'm making the assumption that god by giving us knowledge has said as far as you can go that's fair game But I had heard a comment sometime somewhere that questioned how far mankind should go. Hmm. Well,
3: Genesis doesn't address that. It thinks of the stars and the sun and so on as objects, perhaps surrounding the earth and nearby and not really accessible. Uh, So we probably don't have a clear idea. I know, I think some of us thought that we would never be allowed to land on the moon Because that would be, you know, going beyond our dominion, et cetera. Well, we survived that and we've even got junk on Mars. And I think there's a satellite heading for Europa, which I think is thought to be perhaps the best candidate for life. That's one of the moons of Saturn, I believe it is, that is thought to be one of the best possibilities for life because it seems to have water on it. And if there are thermal pools there, you know, from the interior of the moon, could be actually the conditions for life. But Anyway, a colleague of mine shared with me a business concept that I think really is helpful in unpacking what the Bible only mentions in passing. When it comes to governance, that's a whole scholarly discipline now. Governance means how some people lead other people for the best possible result. And there's three different types of governance in the broadest sense. One can be called leadership governance and leadership is when the leaders have full authority to tell others what to do in a leadership governance setting the assumption is that the leaders have superior knowledge and so those under them are not necessarily consulted but they are expected within their circle to carry out the instructions from leadership the workers have no authority And there are many, many things they're not allowed to know. So there's a lot of secrecy in a leadership governance situation. An improvement on that, in many people's minds, is participatory governance. And that is where the leaders consult with the workers. They spend a lot of time on the factory floor and on the office floor, management by walking around, to do a lot of listening and feedback-getting. And based upon all that feedback, the leaders are empowered to make decisions. Knowledge is shared, but the decisions are still made at the top. The third type of leadership is called shared governance. Shared governance. And that's where the workers are fully engaged. They are not only consulted about the major issues in the company, but they are actually encouraged to help make the decisions. The idea is that their knowledge at the floor level, their knowledge at the customer level, may be superior to that of the leadership in certain issues. And so making the decisions together, allowing the workers not only to offer feedback, but to assist in making the decisions. Shared governance. It seems to me that's the method God chose here. God is describing a shared governance methodology. Where Adam and Eve not only were allowed to give feedback, not only were allowed to do the things that God designed them to do, but were actually allowed to make major decisions affecting the health of the animals, the health of the garden, the health of the fish of the sea, etc., the whole environment. It's a shared governance concept in which Adam and Eve and the human race would be almost like equals to God in terms of that particular domain. And my colleague at the School of Religion who introduced that idea to me said that this method has pros and cons. And one of the cons is that you lose control sometimes of what actually is going to happen. And the leaders can feel almost out of touch at times because so much power has been devolved to the lower levels. And he used that in a class on God and human suffering to say, you know, when we asked the question, why doesn't God do something? The shared governance answer is he already did. It was his intention that human beings would care for these issues. So it's not God's fault when things go awry, but it's human beings using their shared governance
8: that have made a mess of things. Anyway, Libyus. There's a concept that Ellen White talks about in Patriarchs and Prophets, and I don't know if it's okay to read that, but it has always amazed me, and it speaks to this idea of dominion. And she says on page 51, the laws and operations of nature which have engaged men's study for 6,000 years were opened to their minds by the infinite framer and upholder of all. And this is what gets me. They held converse with leaf and flower and tree, gathering from each the secret secrets of its life with every living creature from the mighty leviathan that playeth among the waters to the insect mote that floats in the sunbeam adam was familiar He had given to each its name, and he was acquainted with the nature and habits of all. God's glory in the heavens, the innumerable worlds in their orderly revolutions, the balancings of the clouds, the mysteries of light and sound of day and night, all were open to the study of our first parents. On every leaf of the forest or stone of the mountains, in every shining star, in earth, air, and sky, God's name was written." So, you mentioned like one of the characteristics of dominion, like they had a really deep understanding to be able to manage, to be able to govern, to be able to rule and what they were in charge of, what they were given charge of. And it just blows my mind every time I think of what they were able to relate to and understand.
3: So, when God was giving them dominion, that was shared governance, What I hear in Ellen White's statement is participatory governance. In other words, Adam and Eve were shared governance by God. They had real authority, but in the process of exercising that authority, they took a lot of feedback from the environment, from even the plants. That's an interesting one. These days, if you talk to plants, people are a little worried about your mental health, but apparently there's more to that than we might think (laughs) going in there. So yeah, that's a beautiful statement, unpacking how Adam and Eve's role may have been much bigger than we realize. Let's go to number seven in the handout and read Matthew 6 and verses 19 to 21.
4: Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.
3: So we follow that with a few questions. What does Jesus mean by treasure in this context? Is Jesus saying it's wrong to be rich? Why or why not? What do the stories of Abraham and Job tell us about this? What does the saying of Jesus tell us about the relationship between our use of money and the inner motivations that drive us? Coming back to the first question, what do you think Jesus means by treasure? Iris?
6: Treasure is what we assign significance to, maybe ultimate significance. It kind of could be the mission statement of our life, what drives every other decision that we make. It drives priorities that we set. And so if the things that God has entrusted to us, our time, our loved ones, our money, our profession... If any of these become the ultimate source of significance for our life, the ultimate thing that we worship, then that is what the Bible would call idolatry. And it becomes an end in itself, though in and of itself it is not bad. In fact, God declared everything that he has given to us as very good. But the minute we strive for the things, or whether when the source of our personal significance comes from another human being, or something we do, a profession we exercise, then we are really at risk of getting it wrong and distorting the good creation that God has entrusted into our hands.
3: Know, I've often wondered why athletes who are worth millions battle over every 25 cents in a contract. You know, the contract is five years, 175 million dollars, and they won't accept hundred seventy. So they're holding out. I'm not gonna play until you give me the hundred seventy five. And you wonder why would somebody hold out for an extra five million after more than you can possibly imagine? And I think for human beings, the core of this is the idea that the more money you accumulate, the better your life. It can care for your needs and your wants and your desires, et cetera. So the whole idea of saving money, accumulating money, is to make your life better. When you buy something, you hope to make your life better. This car will make my life better. This house will make my life better. But I noticed in the chat a comment that it's interesting that the happiest people seem to be people who are giving it away. And some of the famous billionaires in our time are working hard to give it all away while they're still alive. And there's tremendous joy in seeing your stored up life making a difference in the lives of others. So how we use our money is sort of a revelation of what really matters to us. I think of Christ Object Lessons, page 351, where Ellen White says money has great
7: value because it can do great good. Henry. I just love the idea that Jesus didn't say, do not store up your money. But he says, your treasures. So it's up to you. What do you assign value to? And that will, should help us out when you talk about stewardship, because typically we start talking about money, and Jesus did not talk about money. And that's one of the most important things that we need to keep in mind, that he doesn't need our money. He's inviting us to treasure what has to have the real value. You're
3: absolutely right, Henry. God doesn't need our money. But in a concept of shared governance, God invites us to use the surplus which we may have to make the world better. And other words, our focus is not so much on making our personal life better, but making the world around us, the people around us,
7: better. Yeah, go ahead. And that may be true in our environment in America or in other areas. But in poor countries, when people don't have any money, then the impact can be made with uh, different type of contribution for others, right? So in order to make it applicable, that's what I love that Jesus didn't ask for money, but for treasure. And this is what we can be impactful in areas where money is absolutely scarce. I like very much what you're saying and call our attention
3: back to the fundamental belief on
7: stewardship,
3: which does get into money, but notice how it opens up. We are God's stewards entrusted by him with time Opportunities, abilities, and possessions, and the blessings of the earth and its resources. We are responsible to Him. There's that word, Larry, that you used. We are responsible to Him for their proper use. So stewardship is much more than money, it's much more than ties. It has to do with a much bigger picture of everything that we have. Money is important because it's central to the way that we value our lives. And the way that we can make a difference in the world. As Ellen White said, it can do great good. So talking about it is of value. Before we close, I want to share one more little thing that I think has been extremely important to me in handling our family finances. And that is I learned this very early on. It's about almost fifty years ago now. We are just about to get married. And I came across the 102070 plan. It's a plan for securing your future financially. And basically what it said was there are things you have little control over, your taxes, your mortgage. I mean, once you settle into that, you really don't control that. You can't necessarily change it unless you're lucky enough to refinance in a helpful way. But those are kind of fixed items. So you take your taxes that you have no control over, you take your mortgage, and it suggested your tithe and offerings. You make a decision ahead of time what that will be and just set those completely aside. The rest of your income is the 100%. That's the disposable income. That's where you have the choice. You isolate where the choice is and then apply 10-20-70 to that. In other words, 10% is set aside for investment. You don't touch that ever until maybe the day that you retire. You can begin touching that, but that's just something you're constantly putting aside. 20% is what they called a debt and buffer fund. And that's for special things like, you know, getting a car, etc. Maybe taking on a loan and paying off the loan. Or if you don't have any use for it in a given month, it just accumulates to handle things further in the future. The key to that idea was that if you can live on the 70%, you will never know financial hardship. Now, that may be difficult, some might say impossible to do if you're truly living in poverty. But I think, as just a big picture, if you can live on the 70%, then you will probably never know want. And I do know that when we started out, we were silks, our family. And silk stands for single income, lots of kids. Okay? Dilks would be two incomes <laughs> and lots of kids. A single income, lots of kids, when the single income is a pastor's income, we were told by a variety of people, you can't do it, especially once the kids start going to school. It's impossible. And following the principle of 102070, we were able to manage that all through the years on the single income. My wife did work for a few years, but generally she was way too valuable with the children and the household and so on to consider that. And, and I'm glad that we made those choices. But to budget in such a way as to leave the space for the things that really matter, that I think is a key principle. Sherry?
0: It's beautiful that people can consider these things and make these choices for themselves. But one thing that I think can spoil it and really make things rotten is when people start making decisions for other people. And... I think that it's important to let each person make their own choices and not try to make choices for them or condemn them or think of ways that you think they should do things better. I think that can spoil the whole creative joy of thinking these things through and making our own choices.
3: Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. And in suggesting this, I wasn't saying that's the plan everyone has to do, but it's the one that worked for us. I wasn't
0: reflecting on you, John. I was (laughs) reflecting on those that call and they have this good idea how you need to spend your money or how you need to spend your time. I like the ideas that you had. I'm just saying each person should have the freedom to make their own choices about what they have accumulated and not decide that they need to make it their business. And I guess that's one reason for Pine Knoll. We have never, ever asked for money. And that's been really a precious part of it to us that we hold very dear, because I think everyone has the right before God to think things through and make their own choices. So that's just from a personal
3: view. Sorry. <laughs> just for the record, your hand was up before I made that comment. So, yes, you were not <laughs> responding directly to that. But I take very seriously the fact that any plan like that, if it becomes something, you know, like you go to a seminar and people are just hammer, you've got to do it this way. No, the best plan for you is the best plan for you, and it might not be the best for someone else. So that's a very, very important caveat. All right, we're coming to the end here, Larry. So these
1: are last words, and we look forward to them. When we're talking about the personal responsibility, you're talking about time, you're giving up a certain amount of your life for a pair of shoes. When I first began to understand the concept of what weight control was about, I dearly love payday candy bars. And there are about 600 plus calories per bar. And one day while I was on the treadmill, I was keeping track of the amount of calories that I was burning. And I realized it took me over an hour to burn over 600 calories. And it was at that point that I had the last payday candy bar and began to then equate all of that. So everything in life comes down to these decisions about how we're going to spend our life. All right.
3: Thank you very much. Let's pray as we close. We thank you, Lord, for understanding that you own everything and that you're extremely generous with it. And you invite us to follow your example in the freedom that you've given us to make a difference in this world. And I pray that you would help us to see opportunities to make a difference in this world, whether it be with our finances or whether it be with our generosity, with our kindness, with our foresight, with our organizational abilities, whatever it is that we would use the gifts that you've given us to make this world a better place. And I thank you, Lord, for the time we just spent together and pray that you would be with us from this day forward for Jesus' sake. Amen.